Greetings, Alpha Seekers. We're back on the air for the second time today. Um, what is today? October 18th, is it? Yeah. 60 degrees in Chicago. It's about 11 o'clock. So, uh, the reason we're on is... The Week magazine just showed up, and I just got done reading it. So this is The Week episode. So, just a quick mention here. Any of you who are looking to pick up a few extra bucks, which I certainly am, there are some things out there called Task Rabbit and Thumbtack. Now, this is not going to make you rich, but you got time in your hands and you want to turn that time into money, check it out. Now here, China's escalating threats to Taiwan is one of the main stories. And I've read all the, uh, you know, the way the week works is they have a summary of something that happened and then they talk about what the editorial said about it. So they quote the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, the National Review, the New York Post. So they take uh, perspectives from across the... uh, political spectrum left and right. Now, the one I agree with is actually, surprisingly, uh, Daniel DePetris in NBCNews.com, who says, let's not overreact to China's largely symbolic military incursions. China frequently buzzes Taiwan's airspace as a way of communicating displeasure to adversaries and competitors, such as when Washington sent multiple cabinet officials to Taiwan last year but there's no evidence that they really want an actual war. An invasion could produce embarrassing losses and turn Beijing into an international pariah overnight and devastate its trade-dependent economy. For the U.S., stumbling into a shooting war with nuclear-armed China would be opening a Pandora's box, so we must keep a level head. And I am of the view that post-Afghanistan... Uh, and given the divisions of this country, we should be telling the Chinese or the Taiwanese to cut the best deal they can. I mean, who in their right mind thinks that there'd be domestic support in this country for going to war with China over Taiwan? I mean, come on. Eventually, they're going to get it, let's face it. They want it bad, and we don't. The island itself is 24 million people. Uh, You know, it's a big Hong Kong is what it is. So eventually they're going to get it. And I think the pretensions of the United States to being the guarantor of freedom uh, in distant lands are absurd, frankly, at this point. And I don't know that you can put that back in the, put the toothpaste back in the tube on that. The economic crisis has been averted. Congress lifted the debt ceiling. Of course, it only goes to December 8th, so we're going to have it again. And here's something else I kind of agree with, uh, one of the more liberal perspectives. The L.A. Times asked in an editorial, can we get off this idiotic merry-go-round? In theory, the debt limit encourages fiscal responsibility. In reality, it's nothing but a prop in Washington's political kabuki theater. 
Having narrowly averted economic devastation, we now face another showdown in weeks. Even if we weather this approaching crisis, the last-minute scrambling undermines confidence that U.S. Treasuries are a stable, predictable instrument. It's time for Congress to get rid of the debt limit once and for all and put an end to this dangerous brinksmanship. I agree with that. And that's probably going to have to be Democrats that do that. I can't imagine Republicans would. Now, controversy of the week. A University of Michigan music professor who screened a clip of Lawrence Olivier's Othello has been forced to withdraw from teaching the class. Bright Sheng, 65, a composer who survived China's cultural revolution, must think he's right back in the 60s. He apologized, but to no avail when students complained that Olivier darkened his skin for the 1965 film. A fellow professor said showing the film was a racist act, while students demanded Sheng be fired for failing to create a safe environment. So this gets pawned off as blackface. Well, I don't know how long TCM, Turner Classic Movies, is going to be able to stay on. But, you know, hopefully university students don't watch it. Now, here's another weird one. Only in America, this is, both of these items are in. Latosha Clemens, the first black female firefighter in Boynton Beach, Florida, is suing the city because a mural honoring firefighters depicted her as white. City officials removed the mural, acknowledging that efforts to make Boynton's image more universal went way too far. Clemens' defamation suit accuses the city of humiliating her. Well, that just goes to show you where white privilege is. You know, we we lived in a time, I did at least, where you know people with dark complexions lighten their skin. Now, they find that insulting. <clears throat> and of course, if you darken your skin, so whatever shit, you know, pretty soon they won't be able to sell makeup. Oh, you're changing your skin tone. Well, I don't wear any, so I'm good. Okay, uh, bad week. There's a good week, bad week feature here. Bad week for Singapore, where authorities tested out mobile anti-crime surveillance robots to patrol the streets. It brings to mind a dystopian world of robots, said one resident. Well, I can imagine if they sent them into the streets here, you know. I mean, you can't drive a car into some of these gas stations. So that would be fun to watch what happened to the robots, but, uh, you know, some kind of mechanical solution to security may be in order, like drones particularly, in my mind. Of course, they'll shoot them down. Now, Alan West, if I remember correctly, Alan West ran for something in Illinois, governor or senator or something. He was an anti-vax Texan former congressman. I think that's the guy. He has COVID. He tweeted from his hospital bed that instead of enriching the pockets of Big Pharma with vaccinations, we should focus on monoclonal antibody therapy. Critics noted that a vaccine dose costs the government 20 bucks while monoclonal antibodies enrich Big Pharma by $2,100 per patient. So, you know, <clears throat> you give the guy a break because he's probably got brain fog from COVID, but 
it's like stupid squared. Exponential stupidity. Now, here's a case of inmates literally running the asylum. Detainees are running entire units of the Rikers Island jail complex, the New York Times found. Since the beginning of the year, 12 detainees have died at Rikers, which currently houses 4,800 prisoners. Now, get this. They have 4,800 prisoners, but they have 8,000 guards. So they've got more than one guard for each prisoner. Hmm. I wonder if that's right. So we go on. Since, okay, 12 died. All, all, most of these prisoners are awaiting trial. In parts of the jail, detainees decide who can enter and leave, answer staff phones and steal keys, freeing accomplices to, free, to commit slashings and other attacks. On September 16th, a detainee hijacked an unguarded bus with the keys left in the ignition and rammed it into the jail building. Rikers is battling mass absenteeism, at times with a third of the guards not showing up for work. There's 8,000 of them. After being charged with a probation violation, detainee Richard Brown, I guess call them detainees instead of prisoners now, was taken to an area run by inmates last month and went two days without eating because detainees controlled food distribution. Brown says he's haunted by the screams of a man he saw get badly beat up. That's worse than any torture chamber. And this is under Bill de Blasio, Mr. Liberal Mayor. I mean, what's going on here? It's certainly not like the old uh, Jimmy Cagney prison movies. I mean, if you can't control the jails, how do you expect to control the cities? Now, here's a briefing on the supply chain problem. Now, I've been very into this area as a result of my writing work, but now it's become a common conversation at the barbershop. I don't know about they still have barbershops. I did get my hair cut this week out at uh, Floyd's Barbershop in LaGrange. Highly recommended. So it, can now, it now could cost $25,000 to ship a standard container from China to the U.S. That's 10 times what it costs uh, normally. There's a shortage of longshoremen in California ports. There's a shortage of truckers throughout the U.S. There's a COVID-19 outbreak outbreak in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly known as Hanoi, uh, which is now a big supplier of ours. You know, how strange how that worked out. Manufacturing countries are still facing their own COVID-19 crises that keep workers out of the factories. So... The story goes that uh, there were severe shortages early in the pandemic. Those have cascaded through 18 months of manufacturers and retailers trying to play catch-up. In 2020, many Americans stuck at home decided to buy new appliances uh, and furniture, but the supply was weakened by COVID, and the huge surge of demand lent 
led to month long month long delays, uh, which probably won't clear up until next year. And then many people laid off early in the pandemic opted not to go back to their old jobs, citing low wages, overworked boredom, and an unwillingness to deal with customers or coworkers who refused to wear masks or get vaccinated. There's also apparently a child care thing, which is keeping women from returning to the workforce who have kids. Some trucking companies, unable to find drivers in the U.S., have started recruiting from Canada and South Africa. Experts say Americans should expect continued shortages at supermarkets, etc., well into 2022. American consumers are expected to spend about $1.3 trillion from November to the end of the year, an increase of up to 9% over last year. Uh, supply chain woes have led to rising prices and a spike in inflation. Biden is trying to boost domestic production of medicine, batteries, and critical materials. That sounds like the last guy we had in there, doesn't it? And according to Stephen Lamar, the actions they're taking should have been taken months ago. So a little slow to the party here. Mega retailers Walmart, Home Depot, and Ikea began chartering their own ships. So they're going to have their own fleet like Amazon could do that. Benetton, which is an Italian fashion brand, wants to regain control of its supply chain. They're going to move production to Europe, Turkey, and Egypt with the goal of cutting manufacturing in Asia by 50%. So this whole globalization Asian thing seems to be peaking and reversing. Logistics experts have started pushing for more automation in supply chain, but that could take years. Others are preaching patience, citing the fact that lumber shot up over 300% and has dropped 69%. So what goes up must come down. The cure for high prices is high prices. Because demand decreases and supply increases to make the money. So that's it. You know, it, before you start putting wage price controls in, which is no doubt the next step, we are reliving the 70s, folks. And the same mistakes are being made. But wage and price controls are, are the, the worst thing. Just let the market work it out. There'll be some pain. But they'll be later. They'll be gain. COVID has had a big impact, obviously. Um, factory closures have led companies to reconsider moving production to Vietnam and other Asian countries from China, where labor costs are now higher. But China largely has COVID under control. Now, there's more to come on this. This this green movement is probably a bigger threat to people than climate change right now, at least, in my mind. China is suffering an energy shortage basically of its own making as it tries to wean itself off coal. To They're actually trying to meet these climate change goals, I guess. Uh, they're cutting power to factories. There's a power crunch in the Northeast where half of their corn and soybeans are produced that could cause global food prices to rise. This green thing is going to consume a lot of green, as in the color of money. 
Now, here's an interesting perspective uh, on the real meaning of Columbus Day. You know, now it's like 14 states, 100 local governments don't celebrate it. Now they're they're celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. And what's interesting is this writer, Dominic Pino, who I don't know, in the National Review, says Columbus Day was never really about Columbus the person at all. It was created in the 1890s, a time of intense bigotry against Italian immigrants to help facilitate the process of Italian Americans integrating into American society. That's progress worth celebrating, even if Columbus himself was no mythic hero. Well, if you look at it that way, unless you're Italian, who cares about Columbus Day? I happen to be part indigenous, so maybe I should celebrate this apparent uh, shift and destruction and deconstruction of American mythology. I don't know. But, you know, the whole point is that we create these heroes to... Uh, instill pride in certain ethnic groups, and then they end up backfiring. Now we're celebrating the indigenous, we're celebrating black capital B. Uh, Hispanics have been kind of left out in the mix here. But, uh, you know, these are basically nationalistic or racial ego uh, exercises. We should do it like in the east side where they just call the streets like Avenue O, Avenue M, and 31st Street. Quit naming things. It's like idolatry. Protecting Utah's wilderness. Now this is Stephen Trimble in the LA Times who thinks it's just peachy keen that two places I never heard of in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. Trump opened them up to oil and mineral exploration. Uh, And this guy thinks that's just horrible and considers the fact that we're preserving this spectacular portion of our natural heritage as a victory, not just for the indigenous people, but for all Americans. Well, We're running out of energy now. The prices are going through the roof. Is that a victory? I don't don't know. I'll have to Google these places and see just how monumental they are. I guess I probably won't bother with that. But you guys go out and do that and let me know if you think they're worth sparing from the drill. But on one hand, we want to be independent, energy independent, mineral independent. And then on the other hand, we want to preserve places that most of us wouldn't even be able to find on a map. I don't know. Okay, here's the uh, energy crisis. Nations struggle to keep the lights on. An unprecedented energy crunch is sweeping much of the world, said the Global Times of China. As the pandemic recedes and global manufacturing ramps up, energy demand has skyrocketed, as has the price of oil, natural gas, and coal. Lebanon went completely dark for 24 hours this week after its biggest power stations ran out of fuel and the whole grid failed. Power companies in Europe, India, and the U.S. are warning there could be outages in the months ahead. Some Chinese provinces are already provinces are already suffering rolling blackouts, with companies rationing the use of factory equipment and instructing workers to take the stairs, not the elevators. Well, it's good exercise. 
China's shortage has panicked businesses, says the Financial Times. Primrose Reardon. Primrose. Great name. No pronouns. I don't know if that's a he, she, it, them. The country draws 70% of its electricity from coal, 90% mined domestically. But Beijing has been shutting power plants for years because of environmental concerns and slowing production at coal mines as part of a worker safety campaign. Authorities are scrambling to boost coal production to keep the heat on this winter so angry citizens don't turn on the government. So in order to stop global warming, people are going to freeze to death? In India, 130, more than half of the 135 coal-fired plants are running on fumes because the monsoon season flooded coal mines and blocked uh, transportation arteries with landslides. Importing coal is not an option because demand from China has driven global prices to record highs, 40% increase through August and September. Price of oil and cooking gas are up about 60%. Europe is heading into winter with households paying five times the usual rate for natural gas, uh, which is their main heating advice, says Bjorn Fink in Süddeutsche Zeitung. I took German in high school, folks. Usually we can blame Russia, but this time we have to blame ourselves, says Bjorn. Last year's unusually cold winter drained our gas reserves, and Germany has been phasing out nuclear power for no reason, other than this Green Party thing. The renewables that are meant to replace those sources aren't yet up to the task. Wind turbines, for example, didn't produce as expected in a year without much wind. You know, one thing about fossil fuels is you get they always work you don't have to sit there like sailors in the 17th century and hope the wind picks up you can't turn the wind down and off while the short-term answer is to suck it up and pay more for gas this year the long-term solution and he doesn't get it is to reduce consumption and freeze and pump more funding into eco-friendly energy sources so you're in a hole Start digging faster, deeper. This process will be expensive, laborious, and politically sensitive as prices rise. In the meantime, we must ensure the poor don't freeze. Well, that's nice of them, or maybe we could burn them for fuel. But there's an upside to the crisis. Juicy prices for the climate killers set climate killers set exactly the right incentives for the rest of us to go green. So these people want higher energy prices. Now, you can do that through a carbon tax, which would probably make sense, and then use the proceeds to build this new green energy infrastructure, but nobody wants to do that because it's regressive. Well, what's going to happen here is the invisible hand of the marketplace is going to impose a tax on the poor people. Oh, that's the same thing, isn't it? I don't know. I have trouble understanding this new green woke world. Now, Joe Manchin says, I don't believe this is about Biden's Build Back Better bill. A lot of alliteration. Is it socialism? I don't believe we should turn our society into an entitlement society, said Joe Manchin, sounding much like a Republican. 
He fears a surfeit of entitlements will sap initiative and encourage dependence. Really? Yeah, that's revolutionary. Joe is my kind of guy. Most of the Build Back Better provisions enjoy broad public support, says Anthony Salvanto of CBS News. In a new poll, 84% of respondents support expanding Medicare to cover dental, vision, and hearing. 73% support paid family leave. 67% back universal pre-K. Two-thirds support tax increases for corporations and high earners. Well, that's because they're not corporations and high earners. And of course people want free stuff. So no surprise there. Everybody wants a free lunch, but it's hard to get anybody to cook the order. Now, a voice of reason, Jonah Goldberg, who is a libertarian, who literally used to write for Reason magazine, which is the libertarian publication. We've already borrowed and spent $6 trillion to ease the impact of the pandemic. It would be foolish to pile additional trillions onto our already staggering national debt. Democrats want a European-style welfare state without taxing the middle class at European levels to pay for it, which unfortunately just does not add up. Manchin is right, said Wall Street Journal, of course. The entitlement's progressive demand would erode upward mobility by encouraging people not to work, which is, I think is true, turning the temporary tax credit, child tax credit, into universal basic income could drive more than a million workers from the labor force, according to a recent study, which they don't name. The European cradle-to-grave welfare states that Bernie Sanders lionizes have lower labor force participation and slower growth. Now, part of the unstated linkage here is that I think the progressives would like to have lower growth uh, because that's linked to the environment. And if I think, being the cynical fellow I am, that if fewer people are independent of the government and make their own living, uh, that's not good for them. The more people who depend on them, the more they lock in their votes and I know it's hard to imagine that politicians would do something just for the sake of power, (laughs) but, um, you know, on the other side, there's the voter suppression argument. So I think the flip side of that coin is the entitlement state. I mean, if everybody's on your payroll, then they have to, if you say jump, they say how high. If you say vote Democrat, they vote Democrat. Unsaddled by punishing tax rates and the intrusive hand of government, our markets, capital, labor, and consumer are freer and more dynamic, said Robert Robb in the Arizona Republic. Emulating a European-style welfare state would blunt that edge, hurting everyone in the long run. And frankly, the biggest problem with socialism and communism is that it mutes price signals. You know, it becomes a centrally planned society and no central planner can substitute for the free market. If you're going to have free, uh, a free dem- democratic political environment, you have to have a free economy. Now, they have elections in these other countries, that's true. 
But basically, it's just, you know, every once in a while you elect somebody who really shakes things up like Thatcher, but mostly it's just one version or another of caretaker governments, and you can't price anything. If everything is free and everything is subsidized, and if there's a rent crisis, then you put rent control in or you pick up the cost of the rent, you distort everything. The economy can't work unless you have independent, free decision makers voluntarily purchasing and selling goods and services. That's what a free market does. And it's up to people what what's valuable or not. You know, if I think some goofy painting's worth a million dollars, that's up to me. If I've got a million dollars. Now, David D'Ellis, David D'Alessandro in the Newark Star-Ledger says that conservatives also hysterically denounced Medicare, Social Security, rural electrification, and bank deposit insurance as commie plots. Well, I don't know if they were commie plots, but they were definitely socialist schemes that were frankly designed to keep us from slipping into communism. The thought back then in the Great Depression was we got to do something to help the uh, the masses out, or they may end up going communist. So FDR was pretty much of an anti-communist, I think. Anyway, Medicare and Social Security are socialist. Bank deposit insurance is a somewhat debatable solution to the problem of the bank failures in the 30s because it creates moral hazard. You know, people don't really think about what bank is reliable and what bank isn't. You saw that in the savings and loan crisis. There's a moral hazard there. Social security creates a moral hazard. People figure, well, I can always live on social security. Well, good luck with that. But um, it, otherwise, they might squirrel away some money. Medicare has completely inflated the cost of health care, in my opinion, extended people's lives beyond really the natural span and in some cases you're keeping people alive just because you would never do that if you had to pay out of your own pocket but it's like oh well uncle sam's paying let's keep the guy in the you know we don't want we don't want uncle uncle joe to die you know keep him alive for another year hooked up to a million devices now rural electrification i don't know if i have a problem with that particularly but what it does do is keep people in places that are probably not economic. So you've got people out there in the the wilds of West Virginia or Tennessee, and they don't have any health care because it's not economical, and yet they have electricity. So maybe if you just left that alone, they would have moved out of there and moved someplace where they can get better access to general civilization. I think you can make a case against all of those. I had a little more trouble with the rural electrification, but, you know, so be it. Noted, under talking points here, the top 1% of income earners now have a greater share of American household wealth than the 60% of Americans who make up the middle class. Well, that's not... There's only 1.3 million American households that make more than 500 grand a year. That seems low. 
to me. I mean, 500 grand a year is not a bizarrely large income these days if you've got two earners. But anyway, that's what it says. They now possess 27% of total assets. And I don't know what the definition of this is, but this is a report from the Federal Reserve. Uh, those who make between 27 and 141 have seen their assets drop to 26%. So the middle class is defined as a household that makes between 27 and $141,000. Now, I don't consider $27,000 to be middle class for a household, but be that as it may, they only have 26.6% of total household assets. So that's an inequality redistributionist point. And it is what it is. I mean, that's, that's those people have done well. Good for them. Now, on the security side, major U.S. cities that pledged to retarget police funds in response to 2020's protests over George Floyd's, they use the word killing, I would use the word death, have reversed course. With violent crime rising, the New York Police Department received an additional $200 million, while LAPD got a 3% budget increase. Dallas restored lost funds and hired 250 more cops. So now we see what happens when you defund the police, you fund the criminals. And maybe that's part of redistribution. And it's also, of course, a good way to bring the price of housing down. I mean, look what happened to South Shore. You know, prices dropped 90%. Woohoo! You know, household wealth decreased. We leveled the playing field. The Gini coefficient improved. That's great. Now, this is a little scary. 78% of Republicans now believe Biden is not the legitimate president, says Susan Glasser in The New Yorker. The whole thrust of this particular talking point column is that the GOP is now an anti-democratic party. Well, I don't know. There are certainly the Trump faction could be accused of that, but I think both parties are kind of anti-democratic in the sense they both want to get a permanent grip on power. But the one thing they do agree on is that there should be two and only two parties because you need somebody to blame. Now here's Fran Lebowitz. She says, think before you speak and read before you think. Well, that's what I try to do in the podcast. So. Now, hacktivism, this is under technology. Now, this is something that probably you and I know nothing about. There's a thing called Twitch. And what Twitch is, I guess, is you go out and you watch people play video games. And I think this may be the future of sports, actually. But there are 81, they call them streamers, who are the guys you watch. And you watch them play, I don't know, Minecraft or whatever, these games. 81 streamers earned over a million dollars each. That's inequality because the average streamer, there's 9 million of them. And the, the, the people at the thousandth highest income only make 85. Well, that's inequality, damn it. But they got hacked 
and they put the source code for this whole product out there. Amazon bought it, I guess. So these hackers are crazy, you know? They're just like uh, anarchists. But you got to work on your cybersecurity there, folks. This is a huge risk. Innovation of the week, Apple's working on technology to control more functions in your car. Apple's CarPlay app, and I have this on the car I just leased, allows motorists to link your phone to handle infotainment. Some users have complained about the need to jump between CarPlay and a car's built-in system to manage key controls. A new initiative aims to reduce that friction by turning CarPlay into an interface spanning nearly the entire car. Um, so it comes becomes kind of a remote for your car. And the data collected could help them build their own self-driving car. Well, I try this, and I don't know what's going on. I mean, I got the phone, I got the console, I got the, I don't know. You know, I'm very confused as I drive around, which is not a good thing. So I'm not crazy about that myself. CarPlay. Now here's a brain implant for depression. I may order one of these, but you got to screw it in your head. That's, that doesn't sound good. Uh, so there's a patient name they call Sarah. Uh, let's see. It's a brain implant. Now if they had some kind of a cap you could wear, but what it does is they, they find the, the, the regions of your brain that get depressed and then they pulse them with electricity and immediately it stops your depressing thoughts. She says, when I first received stimulation, I felt the most intensely joyous sensation and my depression was a distant nightmare. Well, that'd be great because I get depressed from time to time. Life is depressing. Now, what helps you is a dog. Dogs are very uh, uplifting. At least my dog was, but my dog is dead. But there are genius dogs with a big vocabulary. That'd be good for me as a writer. You know? I don't think they talk. A very small minority of dogs have a remarkable grasp of human language, according to a new study by Hungarian researchers. They spent two years looking for dogs that could recognize the names of multiple toys. How do you get a grant for that? The six dogs selected by researchers, all border collies, could each remember the names of 28 to 100, up to 100 toys. 10 or 12 new toys a week. Hell, I know people who can't learn 10 or 12 new things a week. Uh, and two months later, they remembered them. They should get a password dog. Call the dog password. What's the password? And then you pick up a toy or something. The researchers note that only a tiny proportion of Border Collies, and there are dogs of other breeds that have demonstrated this unique ability. I don't think Louie really understood much. If he could have, we would have had a better relationship, I think. The findings should help them better understand the relationship between people and pets. We have a unique opportunity to study how another species understands the human language. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Lassie, they should watch some Lassie episodes, right? That pretty much showed you. Lassie understood a lot. She was a collie. I think actually Lassie was a guy. 
So that probably is politically incorrect now, too. A male dog, or whatever. Now here's a book about rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. By Steven Pinker. And he gets panned by the New York Times. In cheerleading for rationality, Pinker writes as if he's part of an embattled minority. Well, he is. And he focuses on left wings suffocating suffocating monoculture at today's universities, which is for sure. He repeatedly says he's promoting epistemic, 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 that's a new word for me, like a border collie, I have to learn that, Uh, humility, but you'd be hard-pressed to find much humility here. Well, he obviously is rational because he's catching heat from the woke. The Economist gives him a much better review, and I respect The Economist much more than The New York Times. Humans evolved not as intuitive scientists, but intuitive lawyers, exercising their powers of argument to win for their given tribes. And boy, is that evident today. Even within my little family, you know, my wife is very effective at that. And then the economist says, too soon he's championing championing rationality as the solution and ignoring how certainty attained by any path can lead to dangerous hubris. After all, from the French Revolution on, being right has been used to justify appalling crimes. And I think that's where we're headed in this country, by the way. And I I don't know whether I'm more afraid of the left or the right. Now here's a book about a German named W.G. Sebald, S-E-B-A-L-D, that I never heard of. He hated his father's generation for accepting the Nazi rise. And his books were a way of reminding us never to lose sight of humanity's destructive urge, especially as we look toward the future. And that gets back to my point about not being sure if I'm more concerned about the left or the right. Extremists of all kinds are dangerous. People who are sure that they are the unique possessors of the truth. There are many quotes on the subject none of which I remember well enough to recount. Now here's something. Um, Where to start with home solar? I'm thinking maybe I could put solar power on the roof. Maybe that would make it appealing to people when we do our redeco, which is in progress. So I'm clipping that out, show that to the realtor. Now here's a little tech support, how to get better Google results. Use quotation marks around your search terms, and that cuts a lot of the clutter. Specify the site, and you do that by typing your keywords plus site followed by whatever it is. So if you just want to look in the Chicago Tribune, exclude certain terms. You can place a minus sign right before a keyword to avoid results associated with that term. 
And you can do that with the websites. Add parameters. You can put an or between them that gets broader results. You can put a time frame in before or after, followed by a specific date. Or you can use the asterisk, which is kind of a wild card. Just an asterisk. It used to be like an asterisk dot asterisk, I think. So those are some search engine tips for you. I imagine they work on Bing, too. running close to the edge. Now, um, this is business, the news at a glance. talks about the fact that Apple is cutting production targets for the iPhone by 10 million units because of supply chain issues, chip shortages. Now, I imagine this will even out. So what it'll end up doing is, you know, cutting demand and supply. Cutting supply, but not demand. So it'll push a lot of sales down into 2022, which could be good for the market. I don't know. <clears throat> market was pretty good today. The pandemic has prompted 35% of Americans to change their retirement age. And of course, I don't have one, sadly. 24% plan to retire later and 11% earlier. So most of the change is extended in the work life. Now, you may have heard about the Chevy Bolt. There's volts and bolts, I guess. So the Bolt um, had problems. They had to recall 141,000. And LG Electronics is picking up the tab for that recall, $2 billion, because it was their um, batteries. So good job for GM. The share of U.S. transactions made in cash fell to under 20%. Seven-point decline from 2019. I think eventually cash will be history. And that will improve the tax collections, by the way. Consumers are going to spend 20% more this year on gifts, travel, and entertainment during the holidays than they did last year. But it's only $1,500. I wish I could get away with that. Nations have agreed on a global minimum tax. Landmark deal uh, is the culmination of years of negotiations, but each country needs to revise its own domestic tax laws, including the U.S., which must let pass legislation raising the tax on American companies uh, for foreign profits to 15 from 10.5%. So they're, all the work that was done to lower that rate and repatriate the money, now they're going to give it a 50% increase. But there's a silver lining for tech giants. Lobbies representing some of the world's most valuable companies have actually rallied behind the plan because it phases out a different kind of tax that tech dislikes even more. Countries such as France, Italy, the UK, and Canada will have to ditch the existing or planned digital services taxes they passed unilaterally. 
The new framework also requires that multinationals pay taxes based on the business they do in each country, regardless of where their headquarters are located. But tech companies see that as a lesser evil rather than a patchwork of digital taxes. So, not all bad. Prices rise at the highest rate in decades. The highest jump since 1991, 5.4%. Meats up 12%, gas 42%. The IMF warned the Fed to prepare contingency plans to counter inflation. This is not how I thought it would pan out. But the supply chain disruptions are a real wild card there and the political instability between China and the U.S. Tesla's moving to Texas. And, you know, I was talking to somebody today about the uh, the concern that the United States might not remain united. A lot of the United States is moving from blue states to red states, particularly business. So that's something that needs to be factored in. Now, Kramer, Jim Kramer, was early in the year, I remember quite well, was talking about how fossil fuel stocks are uninvestable. And now, according to the Wall Street Journal, the price of oil rose above $80 a barrel, which for the first time since 2014, despite pressure from the U.S., oil export, exporters have resisted increasing production to meet surging demand. Oil has increased 125% since October. Such in, Some investors are betting that a worldwide shortage of natural gas and other fuels needed to power homes and businesses could prompt power plants to resort to oil as an alternative, contributing to even higher prices this winter. So Kramer was dead wrong. And that happens. And that's why I don't follow Kramer religiously by any means. Jim Cramer on CNBC, for those of you who don't know him. He's the mad money guy. Now, Facebook, there's an article in here about a guy who came up with a, a, a tool called Unfollow Everything that allowed users to automatically unfollow everybody on their Facebook account, thus eliminating the platform's trademark news feed. Now, I tell you, if these regulators really wanted to put the kibosh on Facebook's deleterious effects, they could just cut the news feed because that's all I ever read. And back before news feed, you just had people's profiles out there. Well, there's nothing to see. So news feed is the problem. If they wanted to ban that, that would be the end of the problem with Facebook. Then you'd have Twitter and you know, all this other stuff. But that would kill the company, too. Now, South Dakota, turns out, is a great place to hide money and trusts uh, for various reasons. But if you're thinking of hiding some money, think about South Dakota. But uh, David Fickling in Bloomberg points out that global tax laws are, by their nature, long and complex, comprising hundreds of jurisdictions, the possibilities for loopholes are almost limitless. Attempts to impose tax constraints can feel like a game of whack-a-mole as countries and even states continue the race to the bottom that's been going on for four decades. These Pandora Papers 
exposed the fact that the people in charge of writing laws and treaties that underpin international capital flows have much to gain from the current setup until that changes, nothing else will. Well, they did come out with this worldwide floor for tax, uh, corporate tax at least. Stay away from these online-only banks. Chime is one that's discussed in this article that just kind of arbitrarily shuts down accounts. So stay away from that. A startup trading platform is seeking approval from the Securities and Exchange Commission to operate a stock exchange 24-7. The street doesn't like it. It's called 24 Exchange because these guys like to take some time off. But you've already got after-hours training and trading, rather. And uh, as an options trader, I used to hate it when the market closed because I couldn't get out of positions. And... You know, crypto already trades 24-7. So I have a feeling that's the future. Now, there's a thing called Tether, which is some kind of crypto play. I would stay away from that because Zeke Foe, F-A-U-X. So that's fake in English. Um, writes in Bloomberg Businessweek. So that's really fake news, right? Zeke Fake. Uh, in English. If the skeptics are right about this tether thing, it could be a bigger Ponzi scheme than Bernie Madoff's. So that tells you all you need to know about tether. Shadow inflation you sense is real. Article by Neil Irwin in the New York Times. The only reason I find it notable is he introduces a term I never heard of. Economists try to take changes in product quality into account through a process known as hedonistic adjustment, which most commonly applies to physical objects as in the quality of the stitching of a shirt. But he's talking about it from a service perspective. What he means is like, we were in a hotel for a while and uh, no valet parking, no bellhops, now, it was, you know, it was like a two- or three-star hotel, but no room service, you know, bare bones. So that's called hedonistic adjustment, is it? And, you know, you have to make hedonistic adjustments from time to time. So that's a vocabulary boost for you. And, let's see, 54 minutes in. So, if a border collie can learn seven new toys a week or whatever, then you can learn seven new words. And so can I. So we'll learn together. And that's about the size of it. Uh, It's now almost Tuesday. So, uh, my little Audible platform, is it Audible? whatever it is, politely tells me the maximum recording time for segments is 60 minutes, so keep an eye on the clock, which I am, and the clock ticketh. So I am out of here. That's the news, and I am out of here, like Dennis Miller used to say before he was canceled. So have a good day, wherever you are, whenever you are, and live long and prosper. 
and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.